0: Welcome to The New Talent Code, a podcast with practical insights dedicated to empowering change agents in HR to push the envelope in their talent functions.
1: We're your hosts. I'm Ligia Zamora. And I'm Jason Serrato. We're bringing you the best thought leaders in the talent space to share stories about how they are designing the workforce of the future transforming processes, rethinking old constructs, and leveraging cutting-edge technology to solve today's pressing talent issues. It's what we call the New Talent Code.
0: So if you're looking for practical, actionable advice to get your workforce future ready, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the New Talent Code, another episode with your co-hosts, Leah and Jason. Hi, Jason
1: here, how are you?
0: I'm good. I'm super energized today. We have a great guest on the podcast who's really an expert in all things business and HR transformation. Say that twice. Mary Faulkner joins us from IAHR, a consulting firm that helps organizations start the change management process and ultimately really just transform their organizations. The great thing is she's also worked in a number of different roles in organizations across the HR function. So we're going to get some really good nuggets of advice out of her. We are so excited to dig into the questions every HR leader should know and should be asking as they gear up for a business transformation across the enterprise. So welcome, Mary, to the podcast. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. So tell us more about your own non-traditional, non-linear career path. How did you end up where you are today?
2: Yeah, actually, it started way back when I wanted to be a stunt car driver. So that was my (laughs) ultimate career goal. Didn't make it. And then I was going to be a scientist. I was going to be a teacher. So I actually, I have a history degree with a physics minor because of course, who doesn't? (laughs) So I was going to be a teacher and ended up working for a tech startup during the early days of tech startups. And it was voice over the internet. It was great. I got to do everything. I did investor relations. I did press releases. I did website design, all that kind of stuff. And then the tech bubble popped. So never got to be a teacher, but I loved that world. So I worked in that for a while, trying to figure out what I wanted to be What I grew up. So I started an MBA and about three semesters in, I thought an MBA was the worst idea I've ever had. (laughs) Hated it, but I did love my stats course. Mm -hmm. So I actually took advantage of my career center and I went and said, what should I do? And they're like, we could do a lot of different things, but there's this. And I was like, oh, people get paid to do learning and development? I thought that was just something everybody did off the side of their desk. So I actually went into learning and OD, and that was my entry into the HR world. And from that point forward, I just had an opportunity to work for a number of different organizations that were going through transformation.
0: All right, so let's kick this off. We're going to talk shop. As you know, this podcast is about providing our listeners with practical advice so that we can adapt our talent strategies to the new norms, new ways of working so that we can get everybody and their workforce future ready. So let's kick this off. And again, more on this topic of non-traditional career paths. You've written a lot and talked a lot about the fact that there's a shift in the way that we do work now. And one term that you've brought up before is this concept of liquid workforce, dynamic teams that are populated by skill sets rather than necessarily resumes. So tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. There's lots of research out there. I would love to say I coined the term liquid workforce. Of course I didn't (laughs) I believe it was an Accenture study that came out gosh must be ten years ago now. But the idea of it is work is no longer come in, do it, leave. Business needs change, project teams form and dissemble, programs come up, and then they go away. So if you talk to a lot of organizations today who are going through any kind of transformation or any kind of long-term program, it could be a two to five year Program or project plan, and then it goes away. So, what do you do with those people? You need to find another home for them. So, what you're really seeing in work today is figuring out how do we match people to work that's interesting to them, that really fits the skill sets that they're bringing, or how do we reskill our existing workforce to fit into the work that needs to be done? But a lot of organizations struggle with this. So, they just hire for what's needed right now, and they try to hire somebody who already has that skill set. And has done it before and they're shocked when the person is like i've been doing this for 15 years i don't necessarily want to keep doing it but that's fine and then they don't know what to do with them when that work goes away so it's going to be something that organizations will have to adapt to and i use this example all the time when you look at industries that have figured it out the entertainment industry is a perfect example of that type of liquid workforce oh, yeah. if you have a movie or a show People come in at different times. You have the writer, there's a concept, there's a plan put together, and then the actors come in. And then there's post-production and different people join at different times. And then they move on to the next project. And that's just accepted. And that's just the way that work gets done. And I think corporations are going to start seeing that as well.
0: But I mean, that really blows up a lot of your talent processes, performance management, compensation, learning and development. It kind of turns it on its head.
2: It can, but what's interesting is that we claim that's what we want. When you talk to any talent management leadership or any organization that says we are dedicated to the employee experience and their journey and letting them own their career, we're trying to get employees to accept the idea that linear up is not always the way that you're going to grow your career. It could be to the side, it could be down a little bit because then you want to go to a different path. We want you to develop, we want you to identify where your skill sets are. We say we want to do that, and yet work is not structured that way, and we make it harder for people. I think performance if you tie it more towards outcomes as opposed to Mm -hmm. these random goals that (laughs) change every five weeks anyway, there's an opportunity to do that. I think the bigger one is compensation. And that's going to be one that has to be solved for. We're seeing challenges in the workplace today because market-based, skill-based, experience-based, job description-based compensation has been the norm for a lot of organizations. And with the growth of uh, remote workplacing, of organizations saying, hey, you can live anywhere and we'll pay, that's really turning compensation models a little bit on its side and trying to figure out, just because this skill set is in demand today, is it going to continue to be in demand? How do I change your compensation potentially based on the demand for your skills? So it's going to be really fascinating, but we have to figure it out.
1: So Mary, you've talked a lot about kind of the impact of this shift on talent management and on planning for work. And there was an article published recently that used the phrase, if you're having trouble filling jobs, deconstruct them and focus on the work and focus on the skills that are required. And maybe it's not one person's job, but it's a team that acclimates to the work. What does this mean for talent acquisition when you're focusing on work or a project rather than maybe solely a job description?
2: Well, it's really going to just change the philosophy about talent acquisition. So I am empathetic to what recruiters are going through right now. I'm just going to say that flat out. Your jobs are (laughs) insane right now. Totally get it. (laughs) It's hard to find. When is it not? But there needs to be this focus on hiring for potential, but still hiring people who are qualified. And it's such a difficult tightrope to walk. So from a talent acquisition perspective, it's about really talking, knowing the business, talking to your hiring managers, sitting in on some team meetings, understanding what the business roadmap is, understanding what the business plan is going forward to anticipate some of the work, working with the hiring managers, working with your leadership to say, what do we think we're going to need in the future as well? And then being able to look at a resume, looking beyond the job titles, for God's sake, stop hiring on job titles because they're all different between all the different organizations. Looking beyond that, looking at what they've done, what could they do, identifying potentially some assessments or some ways to focus on how likely are they to be open to learning new ideas. It's changing the way that we look at resumes. It's changing the way that we interview even, and really understanding what it is that they're bringing to the table so that when they present those candidates to a hiring manager, they're able to do it in a compelling way.
1: So one of the things we talked about frequently on this podcast is this concept of learnability and adjacent skills. As we're thinking about kind of the shifting workforce and the, and the liquid workforce or the dynamic teaming and all of these things, how kind of important or at the forefront is this concept of taking a skills-based approach, but also looking at learnability and capability?
0: And I'm going to add to that. How do you assess learnability realistically?
2: Yeah. So the term that's really out there for all the construction and the assessments is learning agility. It's been out there for a while. You'll see different definitions of it, but learning agility is really that ability to unlearn what you think and learn what's new. And it's not just smarts. Yes, being intelligent helps, but it's really being able to let go of the past and take on new constructs. So you could argue it against a fixed mindset versus growth mindset. It's really being able to bounce out of those neural pathways that you've had all your life to be able to adapt to the new. So all of that sounds great, right? But when we think about learning agility, it's exactly what organizations always talk about when they, they say, we need to be agile, we're fast moving, we're dynamic, we want you to be able to do change management. That's all the right buzzwords, right? So you want to be able to hire people who do that. The problem that a lot of organizations have, though, is great. You've hired these change makers. You've hired these people who are going to come in and completely reinvent and are open to new ways, but the organization's not open. Or the leadership's not open. So people move on. Because if you hire somebody with learning agility, with somebody who wants, who really strives to do something different all the time and you don't let them do it, they're going to leave.
1: Now, as you're working with clients around transformation and, you know, changing their organization and planning for the future, it's not simply a technology solution. Having sat in the chair and and lived and learned some of these lessons, I used to always say, if you add technology to a broken process, you just get a faster broken process. So what are you seeing with your clients around kind of change management and culture and behavior in addition to kind of technology and kind of new processes?
2: Yeah, that is sort of the foundation of what we do. We always tell our clients or any business who will listen to us that please do not go to a new solution until you have optimized your processes. You've really looked at your business. You've understood what some of the pain points are. You have looked to see this is what our current state is, what our future state should be, and then compare that to what technology you currently have. We're seeing a lot more self-awareness there. We hear a lot of change management being important and understanding it's important, Unfortunately, there are a number of organizations that just don't have a change management methodology baked into how they work. So if you find yourself constantly changing, but you don't have a built in change methodology to help support people through that change, all you're going to feel is chaos. So what we try to impart when we talk to organizations is it's never too soon to start thinking change management. It's never too soon to start thinking through your communication plan, your training plan, your stakeholder identification, who are you going to have to tie in, when and where and all that, start now. On the flip side, you ask about culture and behavior. When we're talking to organizations and we ask them about what's not working with your process or what are some of the challenges you're facing, behaviors make up your culture, but be aware of what you're allowing. So to say that you are a service culture, but then you're allowing bad behavior there's incongruent there. So fix the behavior, fix the mindset, get them there with you, and then your culture will be able to thrive no matter what kind of culture you want to build for it.
0: So Mary, as you're talking, I think one of the things that speaks to me is obviously for change management, you need executive buy-in. What other things, three to four things you think are key for change management to work when you roll out these uh, new processes and enabling technologies?
2: Yeah. One of our key core tenants though is why wait? If there's something you can change immediately, just change it. You don't need a big thing. If you're in the middle of a process mapping and you identify somebody doesn't have access to something that they should have and you can fix it right then and there, just do it. Other pieces are, is really having a good narrative or an elevator speech or whatever it is, but have a good reason as to why. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're doing a major transformation, it is going to disrupt a lot of people. It's gonna disrupt a lot of ways. Even if it doesn't immediately impact an end user, there's also needs to be a good understanding of what is the cadence of the work? What are the milestones of the work that's gonna be happening? And then tie your change communication and your change training to those milestones. So they have to be in lockstep. You also need to have incredibly impeccable communication within the project team itself. So if you have a project team that cannot communicate and can't change themselves, then any outside change management process is not gonna work either. So really making sure that everybody is engaged at the same time. Sometimes when we set up programs with organizations, they wanna think of change management as its own separate work stream. And yes, it is a separate team, But it's not a separate work stream. It is threaded throughout every single thing that's happening. So make sure your change management is embedded in everything that you're doing.
1: My experience, both as an analyst and as a practitioner, sometimes the new process is the easy part. It's clean, it's new, it's the green field, what you want, what you want to change. In my experience, the hard part sometimes is knowing everything that you already have, because a lot of things were built kind of in the corners, you know, out of the spotlight of the sun, especially in (laughs) HR, or also knowing what's going to break when you start changing things and pulling things apart. Have you run into that with some of the clients you work with?
2: Oh, absolutely. It's so important to start with that forensic look at what is it that's happening in your workplace right now and making it safe. So when we start doing that kind of process mapping, we say we're going to make faces and we're sorry it's not at you sometimes we're surprised by what we hear we're not being judgmental we're just trying to understand and we want the people who actually do the work to be the ones telling us what's happening in the organization so getting the right people in the room to be able to share what their challenges are we hear all the time i didn't ask them for their pain points along the way and they're saying well, that's not a pain point. We're like, that's absolutely a pain point. That can be automated for you. Did you not know that? Or it's like, why are you using 15 trackers when you have this dashboard that could be used? So it's a great opportunity to be able to unravel some of those pieces and give them the opportunity to speak about it. And then we can be their voice, whether it's leadership or whether it's an outside consultant or whoever it might be, but give a voice to those people are doing this on a daily basis and then you're going to find even more things and once that safety went up reports went up and people freaked out because oh my gosh we're, we're doing so much worse because we said we wanted people to report it so what you want is you want those reports so you have to make it safe and you have to make that environment so that you can find all those ugly bits that you haven't been able to untangle for years because people would just cover them up because they didn't want anybody to know and mess with it.
0: So now I'm curious, give us some war stories without mentioning names. As you're transforming organizations to be more skills-based organizations so that they're an organization of the future, tell me, what have you come up against? What have you uncovered? What are some of the biggest challenges? Oh, my goodness.
2: That's a bigger than a bread box question. I don't even know if it's like the big things. It's always the little things. Mm -hmm. It, It tends to be there's a person who's been at the organization for 35 years who's the only person who understands one program and doesn't want to let it go. And they're scared that all of their worth is tied up into that one thing that they do. So you have to be able to show them what their role is going to be in the new future. You have to get them to understand that you are still valuable to this organization. It's just going to be different. So we run into that quite a bit. When we hear about multi-step integrations or file load processes that are all manual. And we're just like, oh my gosh, that's a button that could be pushed. That's eye-opening as well, because you're seeing all this manual work being done to support a process that should be automated. I do run into from time to time, which is kind of fun. You have outsourced a process, whether it be a leaves of absence, or maybe your payroll, you are paying a provider to do that for you. And yet you are doing a shadow process right along with them <laughs> because you don't trust that they're doing it right. It's like either you have a problem with your provider and you need to fix that, or you have a problem with trust and you need to fix yourself. (laughs) So there's just some of the things. But one of the bigger ones really is getting that leadership buy-in. You really have to dig into how far are they going to support? Are they lip service saying, yes, we support change and we want this to be better? Are they going to support the budget for it? Are they going to support the headcount for it potentially? Are they going to support the business case for it? And getting those stakeholders to buy in, that can be a challenge. So we start a lot of times and work with our HR, but HR is so connected to finance, to IT, to operations, whatever it might be. And if HR hasn't taken the time to talk to those groups at some point, it's going to fail. So we're working with a client right now that they came to us fully aligned. They came to us as a finance, HR, IT team to do this transformation. And we were so excited because that showed us that they were really thinking about it in the right way. So we always start with the stakeholder analysis and say, hey, HR, have you talked to finance because some of the changes that you wanna make are gonna impact the way that they do cost centers or the way that they budget or whatever it might be. Like, no, we own this. It's like, you own it, but you have friends that you need to be able to be successful. So that's typically what we see.
0: How do you convince people, and I think of some constructs, and you've spoken about this before, the job description is outdated, the resume oh doesn't actually work, let's be honest, we all beef it up, right? So I'm going to apply to this job, so I'm going to customize my resume. But at the same time, I'm a hiring manager, I've done job descriptions my entire life, and I'll be honest... It's not something you spend a lot of time on. You grab an old one that you've written before, you update it, right? Full transparency here. But then you figure you're going to figure it out during the interview. It's true. You're cringing, but it's I know. true. I know. And <laughs> the last thing I want to hear is for HR to come and tell me, "Oh, we're going to do away with these things." By the way, and now I'm going to turn this upside down and create a new way. So, how do you get? I guess your hiring managers, your users. How do you get people who are used? To, I mean, the job description's been around probably since Da Vinci, right? First <laughs> yeah, of all, <laughs> to fess up. Yeah, I know we use that analogy to fess up and say okay, actually something we've been working on is outdated and no longer applies. And number two, buy-in for a new way of doing things. which by the way, for me as a hiring manager, creates more work. Because I just told you, I grab old ones and I update them.
2: So it's interesting you say that. I think it starts with who owns the job description. So I've worked in organizations that centralized it or decentralized it. And the organizations where they centralized the ownership of a job description, the true ownership of it, I think it's smoother because it's all gonna be the same. It's gonna be equitable. It's going to have all the same elements to it. And then when you start that requisition or you start that position, then your talent acquisition or whomever needs to create the job posting based on the job description brings it to the hiring manager. So it's not that the hiring manager is reacting to something and having to rewrite, somebody else is doing it for them someone who's knowledgeable, someone who understands the market, somebody who has talked to compensation potentially, whatever it might be. So that's one thing is thinking about who really owns the job descriptions in your organization. The next piece of it is think about how you are modeling your compensation. So if you did your compensation based on point factor, hiring managers figured out, oh, if I make sure that they have to have seven years of experience instead of five, and they need this degree instead of that degree, I can get this person more money. And because we had to post everything, because we were civil service, it was a very targeted job description so that one person in the organization would be qualified for it. And they (laughs) want to get them the highest amount of money as they could. So you have to really think about, are we locking ourselves into a certain kind of job description because we have decided that's how we're doing our market surveys? The reality of it, and Tim Sackett, who is a recruiter and speaker and everything like that, you've probably heard of him. <laughs> but he used to say, Your market is the people who want to work for you and have the skill set and the amount that you are willing to pay for that job. And then your talent pool are the people that fall between those two circles. So the market really is not so much what the pay is out there, but what your organization was willing to pay for that role. So I guess it's all to say, yes, you can use market surveys to look at what skill sets are there, what are similar roles or similar work that's going to be done so that I can stitch together some sort of compensation. But you have to break away from some of that model and understand what is your organization? What do you want to build? So what is it that you want to pay? What are you trying to do? Can you put some money, I'm not going to say at risk, but some sort of incentive plan together to be able to give them an opportunity for bonus based on Demonstration of results or demonstration of skill sets. Can you give them an opportunity to grow within your organization? Are you going to be doing a three percent maybe raise every year, and then realizing that that's not going to be successful? You really have to rethink all of your compensation to get that buy-in. I think a hiring manager, if they were told, "Listen, I am going to bring you a bunch of people with awesome skill sets, and you don't need to look at resumes, you don't need to look at job descriptions. Amen. I'm just going to present you a profile of somebody I think is going to be successful." I'm sure a hiring manager would be like that's awesome
0: yeah i want to get the work done i want to meet my goals but at the same time there's an aspect or i don't know if we'd call it change management or a bias in terms of as a hiring manager i know you're saying as a hire I, I, this is Leah's confessions podcast but as a hiring manager i'm going to see a part-time person to working on a project differently than i'm going to see a full-time employee there's a relationship there is trust there is i don't know i, I guess a return on investment, I'm going to call it, because I'm investing time in a full-time employee, that relationship, that culture training, that is it indoctrination into your team about how we do things, the level of quality expectations. If I have a bunch of part time people, it kind of goes away. And then I have to invest that time in what I call ramping up the employee with every part time person. So, how do you get the managers then to buy in into this blended workforce? Well, part of it
2: is because of that bias, that belief that a full time employee is worth more than someone who may Mm -hmm. be a gig employee. Because guess what? Everyone's a gig employee. Nobody has employment for life. We're pretty much all at will, right? There's only a couple of states. Even if you're civil service, All we need to do is create some documentation and you can be let go for cause. I mean, so we're all at will. Let's just be honest with ourselves. So then it's really about re-skilling managers to rethink the way that they lead workers. It's not about employees, it's about workers. It's about teams. Every team, even if it's a bunch of full-time employees, every team has to figure it itself out. If you bring in a new full-time employee, the team has changed. If you lose a full-time employee the team has changed every time that happens the manager has to adapt the manager has to rethink the team dynamics the manager has to rally the team and get them to think a different way so what's the difference if it's a gig employee or if it's some full-time employee that's been with you for years
1: so mary what about hr over the past few years it's become increasingly of interest this concept of total workforce management and the entire workforce and everyone's experience and all of these things and these measures that are out there in the market. But historically, HR hasn't really owned this and for certain legal reasons and also just responsibility reasons have avoided getting in the mix. When I used to work with a lot of TA leaders and TM leaders, they would start asking questions about this, but they were still kind of peeking over the fence right? Mm -hmm. Are you starting to see more and more organizations and HR organizations take a more active role in this blended workforce?
2: Yeah, I think I see the same thing. When we work with our clients, we ask them, what's your thought on that? Do you want to own contingent labor or how is contingent labor handled in your organization today? What's the sharing? One of the things that we'll sometimes see is the infrastructure is not built. So providers have not given HR or organizations, a really easy way to manage contingent workforce. Is it visibility? Yeah. It's visibility. It's licensing. So organizations might say, yeah, we would love to have contractors be in our system, but you're going to charge me the same for a contractor as you would a full-time employee. So I don't oh, want to pay yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The smart providers are figuring out a way to change that. They're trying to figure out, okay, so how do I still give you the same access and visibility, but maybe we change our pricing for those licenses. Do we charge you as a two-third FTE? Do we charge you as a one-third FTE? Whatever it might be. So they're trying to figure that out. And to your point of saying some of it is legal. Yes, we still have to be aware. As much as progressive, we want to think about the workforce changing. We all know that policy severely lags behind reality. So right now, we are still working in a place where co-employment is something that organizations have to be wary of. So thinking about how you're setting up your contingent workforce, you're not directing necessarily their work. If you're having them as a contractor versus a temp or somebody who's coming in from an agency, the agency still has to be the ones who are paying them and all that sort of thing. So you still have to think through that. But when you just think about vetting candidates, sourcing candidates managing the way that work gets done, there is a benefit to having HR being in the mix, whether it's to help with workforce planning and helping an organization understand that is something that they could think of. Thinking of even automation as an FTE potentially, the idea of when you think of your resource planning, automation could potentially be thought of as an, a- an FTE or a solution or an outsourcing should be thought of as an FTE. HR can help with that to say, okay, what's going to be person, what's going to be, Platform, what's going to be, how are we going to figure that out going forward? How are we going to move people around? I will say a lot of organizations are hesitant to let people go when a project ends, which is great. That shows that there's a humanity there, all that sort of thing. So, how are you going to redistribute that workforce? How are you going to reskill that workforce? All of that has to go together. And HR can be a really good conduit for that because they are one of the few groups in the organization that interacts across the entire company. So, there's lots of different ways. I think both HR and the business needs to rethink ownership and figure out what works for them.
0: Is it fair to say that the blended workforce is the way of the future? And I'm curious to know, again, personal standpoint here, because I'm going to retire because I'm 29. And I've always toyed with the idea of, yeah, I'm just going to do projects. But do you think the pendulum will swing to one extreme or the other? There's a lot been written about the kick economy. There's a lot been written about the new generation and the new way of working. What are your thoughts? I personally believe it's going to be blended forever. But what do you think?
2: If our way of work and living continues, I think it would be tough to do anything but blended. And the reason why I add that caveat is most of your safety net in terms of your life is tied to your job, your health, your retirement, your financial well-being. A lot of that is tied to whatever company you work for. So as long as that continues, I think... and. There's going to always be some element of the company as the the caregiver, if you will, for employees that are trying to figure out how they're going to live. I think you see a lot of chatter about the oh the gig economies, where everything's going to be from people joining the workforce, because right now they're not thinking about retirement necessarily. Some of them are, they're putting money away, but they're thinking about like, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to try this, I want to try that, which is awesome. And I wholly agree with that. And then when you actually talk to organizations, you find a lot of people who started that way are now joining organizations because they're like, and I need a 401k, and I need some good health insurance, and you need potentially a pension or whatever it might be. So I think we have to be really careful about when we look at these studies and when we look at these surveys, who are they talking to? Where are they in their career? Where are they in their lifestyle? Are they married? Are they single? Do they have kids? If we truly want to get a true, whether it's a true gig economy or a true blended economy, we need to figure out a way to separate life from work. Work is work, you get paid to do the work, and then you can take care of all your other needs a different way potentially. Then there will always be people who want to know what their paycheck is.
0: Yeah, And Security. They want
2: that. So all of these things tie together to say, I think there will always be some sort of blended preference, need, the way that work just works today and how slow we are as a society to really adapt to the way things go and how do we unravel those things but you are seeing pockets of it. So I, I think it's going to evolve.
0: It kind of gave me two thoughts. A, what a fascinating time to be in HR, to reconstruct some of these processes and constructs. And then the second thought was, maybe HR should be looking at adjacent industries or adjacent skills in other industries that have already mastered this to come in and provide new ways of thinking.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen people bring improv teachers into organizations to figure out how you could build a team, why not extend that to say, how do we build a skill set that lets us think through how we would manage a workforce that truly does come and go? Mm-hmm.
1: That's why even though it's an exciting time to be in HR, it's not an easy time to be in HR. I
2: mean, it's incumbent upon HR to really decide whether or not they're in all for it, want to take on that challenge.
1: So, I mean, we could ask you questions all day. I mean, this has been a a great conversation. (laughs) Mary, one of the ways that we kind of close our podcast is to ask all our guests the same question. And I know you may have given us a little bit of a preview of this in the introduction, but if someone had believed in your potential to pursue a different career path than the one you are in today, is there somewhere you would be today if you had pursued a passion in a different direction?
2: That's interesting. I'm interested in a lot of different things. I would have loved to have been an astronaut just because space is a thing. I mean, The Right Stuff is one of my favorite movies. I get motion sick, though, so that was just never in the cards. Just wasn't going to happen. But I also sing, and I love performing. So I actually have a vocal performance minor, so why not?
1: She tells us that now as the podcast is over.
2: I would love to be able to do that as well as other things. Painting would be awesome if I knew how. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thanks so much, Mary. This has been just fascinating. And I agree with Jason. We might just have to invite you back because I feel like we barely scratched the surface and you just have quite a bit of knowledge and interesting tidbits and advice for our listeners. So with that, guys, thank you so much. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The New Talent Code. This is a podcast produced by Eightfold AI. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit us at eightfold.ai, and you can find us on all your favorite social media sites. We'd love to connect and continue the conversation.